Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, good morning, everyone. And uh, thank you to Jordan Elijah for reading uh, Psalm 68 for us. Um, as you can imagine, we are turning our attention to Psalm 68 this morning, uh, which is a celebration hymn attributed to uh, King David. And as far as uh, historical context is concerned, uh, many scholars uh, believe that he wrote it on the occasion of the Ark of the Covenant arriving in Jerusalem. And for uh, you kids out there, you may remember that this is the story where David embarrassed his wife by dancing so awesomely. Um, and one of the reasons uh, for believing that uh, this event is the context of this psalm is actually the opening verse, uh, because when the ark was built in the Sinai wilderness, we're told in Numbers 10 that whenever the ark set out, Moses said, arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And so these are words that were used whenever the ark was on the move. And so today we're going to see why David was so, or what David was so excited about when the ark arrives in Jerusalem. All right, so we're going to dive in. Um, Many people in the world do not believe that there is a God, right? But there are also many people in this world who do believe that God exists, And they may even believe that God created everything, or at least that he's the first cause of all things. However, they also believe that he is distant and detached and uh, uninterested in what's going on in the day-to-day of the world. But that's not the God of the Bible. And it's certainly not the God that David is worshiping and highlighting in this psalm. Um, The purpose of this psalm is to celebrate the fact that God is present and active in the world, that he is on the move, he is intimately involved in and concerned with human matters. He's up to something, and that something is his great plan for the restoration and redemption of the whole world. All right, this morning we're going to see... that we can see evidence of this work of God in the world in two things. First, the impulse for justice. And second, in the practice of mercy. And then finally, we're going to see a vision for true justice and mercy. All right, so firstly, the impulse for justice. Um, Right out of the gates, David describes an eternal reality. Right, when the Lord is advancing his kingdom purposes in the world, he necessarily pushes back the individuals and systems of corruption and oppression in his path. And just look at the language that he uses here in these verses, right? Uh, As smoke is driven away and as wax melts before a flame, right? Smoke can't resist a breeze no matter how hard it tries. And whenever wax and flame come into close proximity, the result is inevitable. And this is the point that David is making or emphasizing here, right? The natural consequence of the holy God's presence in the world is the displacement of everything that tries to resist him. Everything that opposes his redemptive purposes is bound to be reduced to nothing 
sooner or later. And David knows that you can take that to the bank. And so he tells us to consider Israel's own story. You know, they began as 10th generation slaves in Egypt, a people without an identity or a culture of their own, a people who didn't own any land, any means of production with which to elevate themselves out of the situation they were in. Their lives were used and spent to produce wealth and prosperity for their captors without some form of supernatural intervention, there was no hope that this was ever going to change, right? They, uh, Egypt at that time was the world's uh, most established superpower and there was no other nation uh, powerful enough or crazy enough to intervene on Israel's behalf. And so it seemed as though they were all destined to die in captivity. But that's not what happened to them. As we see here in this psalm, in psalm uh, verses 7 to 10 recount in poetic form what actually did happen. There we read that God went out before his people, leading them out of slavery. God made a way where there was no way. Not even the sea could resist God's advance. Right? Psalm 77 is uh, a favorite psalm of mine, and near the end of that psalm, uh, it says this about the Exodus event. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great water, yet your footprints were unseen. See, God had determined to liberate his captive people. And therefore, nothing in all of creation could stand in his way. Uh, verses 9 and 10 say that you restored, sorry, you restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O oh God, you provided for the needy. He gives this people a culture and an identity of their own as his covenant people. He gives them the land. He gives them crops. He gives them livestock. He gives them the ability to provide for themselves. He establishes them gives them peace and prosperity and security. But this doesn't happen without opposition. And many, starting with the Egyptians, try to stand in the way of this happening, right? Obviously, they weren't just going to allow this captive workforce that built their whole empire to walk out the door. And thus, the, the somewhat jarring manner in which the psalm opens, right? We hear words like the wicked shall perish before God and it makes us a little bit uncomfortable. The violence of the Old Testament um, yeah, often makes us uncomfortable and we're tempted to think that God is maybe being a little bit harsh, but frankly that's because uh, as modern western people we have the luxury of being very far removed from the realities of war. You know, in many parts of the world today, the rule of life is still conquer or be conquered. And this is the context into which Israel is born. And so as God leads Israel out of Egypt, other nations are lining up to oppose him. Right first, or immediately after they cross the Red Sea on their way to Sinai, the Amalekites come out. 
They see this caravan, this defenseless caravan full of women and children and elderly bearing all this wealth coming out of Egypt. And they think it's easy pickings and they come up against Israel and God drives them back. Later, we see that uh, first the Edomites and then the Amorites refuse to give Israel safe passage across their land. They want to cut them off from the resources they need to survive and to thrive because they see them as a threat and God drives them out. We see the kings of Moab, uh, of Moab rather, try to oppose them because they too don't want to share any of their resources and so they try to have them cursed and destroyed and that didn't work out well for them either. And the point is that none of these people that are being driven out ahead of the Lord are innocent, right? They all oppose Israel for personal gain. Now, having said that, I appreciate that it's so hard to feel good about this, right? But I would argue that our hunger for justice is no less pronounced today in the West. It just looks different. Right? Just look at the rhetoric of the modern social justice movements. Look at Black Lives Matter. Look at the Me Too movement. Right, The explicitly stated goal of such movements is to overthrow the individuals and systems that benefit from the oppression and victimization of others. How is that any different than God's advocacy for Israel in the Exodus event? It's the very same thing that we want. We see that something is wrong and we want to see it made right. And this is a feature of God's redemptive work in the world. Right? It is a good and right impulse. It is a godly impulse to want to advocate for the oppressed. And as the church, as ambassadors of Christ in the world, it is our duty to do so. And that means pushing back against the individuals and the systems that oppress and marginalize and enslave. And so how do we do that? Well, we use whatever resources are available to us in a lawful manner, so long as that's possible. Now, obviously, this isn't necessarily a call to violence, though, as one Old Testament scholar, uh, Dr. Beth Tanner, she wrote this concerning this psalm. She said, this psalm declares the broken, violent, oppressive nature of humanity but offers the hope that even if violence must be met with violence, it is not done for revenge, but for the establishment of God's kingdom and God's justice for all the world. Now, in our context, this responsibility is typically delegated to the state, but we as individuals have voices. And so we speak for those who do not have a voice. And we use whatever influence we might have to exhort others to do right. We can petition our elected individuals, or officials rather, to intervene or to legislate when necessary. It all boils down to this. When we see wrong, we need to be willing to be a part of the solution. We cannot simply turn away from it. All right. So, one way that we see God's redemptive work being carried out in the world is through this pursuit, through this in, impulse for advocacy. But true advocacy requires more than just calling out what is wrong and walking away. It requires more than mere words. 
You know, James 2 says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And James asks a very, very practical question. And and that's why, secondly, we're going to see God's redemptive purposes unfolding in the world are made visible through the practice of mercy. You see, God didn't drive out the wicked simply um, for the satisfaction of it. Right? His justice is motivated by his desire for restoration and redemption. He drove out the corrupt and oppressive regimes of the Old Testament in order to establish something else in their place. When we look at verse 9 and 10 again, uh, where it says, You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O Lord, you provided for the needy. So he drives out the wicked in order to restore the land so that it becomes a means for his people to be a safe haven for the marginalized and oppressed in the world. This was Israel's design. When God first enters into covenant with Abraham, he says, I am going to bless your descendants so that they can be a blessing to the whole world. All the instruction that went into preparing Israel uh, to become an established nation of their own, particularly the civil laws in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, um, are about being radically and counterculturally merciful people. Um, In a world that was viciously tribal, Israel had all sorts of laws that prohibited them from taking advantage of other people. So God was going to use them to end or to break this endless cycle of nations oppressing other nations. Um, God did not save them from oppression in order for them simply to become oppressors of others. And look what happened when they did, right? If you read any of the prophets who pronounced judgment over Israel, it is because they had forgotten what God had done and because they neglected justice and mercy. And the punishment for their crime was that like their oppressors before them, they were driven out from the land. All right. We look at verses 5 and 6. Here we see that God is the father of the fatherless, the protector of widows. He settles the solitary in a home, to the ESV says, but I actually like the NIV better here because I think it gets at David's intent. He uh, sets the lonely in families. Um, But he also leads out prisoners to prosperity. So God is the father of the fatherless, the protector of widows, the provider of homes, the prosperer of prisoners. And where does all this happen? Well, smack in the middle of that list in verse 5, it says, Is God in his holy habitation? And remember, uh, David is talking about the Ark of the Covenant, right? Which is the symbol of God's localized presence among his people, right? The the rest of the psalm makes this a lot more explicit. They talk about Jerusalem and Zion and all that. But the point is, God's holy habitation is among his people. 
It is through his people that God fathers the orphans. It is through his people that he protects the widows, right? It is through his people that he gives homes and families to the lonely and prospers the prisoners. And this is no less true for God's people today than it was 3,000 years ago. The church is meant to be this kind of safe haven for all people. The church is meant to be a pipeline through which God blesses and cares for the world. Uh, James 1, verse 27. It's one of those sort of go-to verses when it comes to mercy ministry, but it doesn't make it any less true. Uh, James says that religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this— to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This little church has a big heart for Mercy Ministries. And it's awesome. There are so many ways for all of us to become involved in the restorative work that God is doing in the world. And obviously today we've just highlighted one great opportunity. You can partner with Compassion, right? You can uh, become a financial partner with them and support the the ministry work that they're doing, uh, the critical mission work that they're doing, especially right now. Um, You can support safe families, become a volunteer. You can become a foster relief family. You can... uh, Join in our efforts. We're trying to put together a, a wraparound group that would be able to work uh, with Ellen Osler Home to better serve some of the women that we get connected with there. You can become a part of that. You can ask me about that. Um, you know, we have a lot of singles, both in this congregation and on the periphery of it. We could get a lot more serious about welcoming them into our homes and into our families. There are plenty of opportunities for us to live this out. All right, this brings me to the third point, which is the vision for true justice and mercy. Um, You see, the the story that David is retelling here, the story of Israel from Egypt to Jerusalem, is a picture of the gospel. And so for believers, it's our story as well. Like Israel, every one of us was born into slavery. We were born into hopeless bondage to our sin. And because of this, we were also rebels against God, justly deserving his wrath. This is why justice and mercy are so compelling to us as humans. Right? We all want someone to advocate for us because deep down, we know that we need saving. Right? And we also know that we are sinners, and so we desperately need to be shown grace and mercy as well. But our story continues, right? Even though we deserved nothing more than his wrath, God, being filled with mercy and compassion, made a way for us to be saved from our hopeless situation. It's at the cross that the just and fair price for our rebellion was paid in full by the only innocent man who ever lived as he died a sinner's death for you and for me. At the cross, the almighty creator of the universe 
voluntarily gave up his power and glory and handed himself over to be abused and oppressed and tortured and killed at the hands of his own creatures so that you and I could be called sons and daughters of God so that we could have an eternal home and a family and an inheritance that does not spoil or fade. Divine justice and mercy have their fullest expression in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's there at the cross that justice and mercy collide and become inseparable. And it's only this reality that can motivate true justice and mercy in the world. Only as we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ and all that he's done for us, will our practice of justice and mercy be truly just and merciful. Look, devoid of the gospel, the pursuit of justice quickly becomes destructive in human hands. I highly recommend Tim Keller's recent article in Comment Magazine, I think it was called The Fading of Forgiveness. Um, I don't have time to dig too much into it, but in it, he does a great job showing how a number of the modern justice movements, while, while many of them began with the right impulse to protect uh, vulnerable and marginalized populations, are only focused on the overthrowing, the deconstructing, and the tearing down portion. But true justice is always constructive. Right? As we saw earlier, God doesn't drive out the wicked simply to feel righteous. His justice is driven by his desire for the restoration and redemption of the whole world. And so um, the gospel reminds us that we are no more deserving of mercy and grace than those whose injustice we challenge. And so we ought to pursue justice then, not with the desire to see someone pay or to get what is owed, but rather with the desire to see both victim and offender restored. Not without consequences, of course, but there has to be grace. There has to be a way to be restored. The gospel demands it. Peter says this in 1 Peter 3, finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. And likewise, the practice of mercy devoid of the gospel is helpful, but only in a temporal way. Remember that God liberated and established Israel as a nation and blessed them so that they would be a blessing to the whole world. The idea was that their radically countercultural treatment of the marginalized, of the outsider, would make them into insiders, right? Would make them into people of God themselves. He chose a specific people for himself in order to welcome all people to himself through them. And my point is that mercy without the gospel is like offering palliative care when you're able to offer life-saving surgery. Yes, give water to the thirsty person, but don't forget that they have a need far deeper than thirst. 
Don't forget to do it in Jesus' name. Remember what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. He says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Guys, this is, this is why we like to partner with organizations like Compassion. Uh, Lord, they, they, they create opportunities to share the gospel of Jesus Christ in meaningful ways while meeting very real needs and participating in God's restorative work in the world. Friends, we have not only received the sweetest gift of grace in the redeeming work of Jesus who died for you and for me, but we have been given the privilege of being invited to participate and to be instruments of his restorative and redemptive work. As the writer of Hebrews says, let us consider how to spur one another on to love and good works, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your perfect justice and mercy. And we ask you to give us a deep heart for the ministry of mercy that you have called us to. Father, we ourselves were orphans and you gave us a home. We were rebels and you made us sons and daughters. We had nothing and you gave us an eternal inheritance with you. Press these truths deep into our hearts and give us a vision and a desire to see your kingdom advance in this world, pushing back all of the forces that oppress and alienate and restoring all of the lonely and brokenhearted in your name. Amen.